It is finished. <laughs> I'm going home. I'm going to bed. I'm tired of y'all now. No. <laughs> no, I'm going to be here tomorrow. We're going to have some more time together. Uh, let me just say this. Thank you so much. Uh, again, I feel at home. And when I feel at home, I get comfortable and I start saying what's on my mind like I'm at home. And so I treat you as I treat my church family. And they know me this way. I um, I truly hope that I have demonstrated love to you. I, I want you to know this so that this can be a blessing to your life. I love the body of Christ. I love my family, and I believe you guys are part of that family. And so it is my desire and my passion to make sure that you get it and you get it right because I don't want people deceiving you, and I don't want you confused and stuck in cycles unnecessarily. I want you to be free because we have so much to do as a family. There's a dying world out there that needs us. But even in that, there's a world of us as Christians who don't know how to walk with God, and they need us to teach them. And so I just thank you again for putting up with my craziness and allowing me to be here in fellowship with you. It is my privilege and honor, and I thank you. And I'm hoping I can get my wife to this beautiful city. My goodness. I enjoy this city. It's just nice. Apart from the church, it's nice. <laughs> All right. I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 to verse 11. And 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 to verse 11. I want us to spend time really unpacking this thing of repentance. And this has been such a major impact on my life because what it did for me is it freed me from trying to be the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. It freed me to evaluate the fact that when somebody is wanting to change, it's not what I said that led them to change. It's not what I did that led them to change. It was God himself moving on the hearts of individuals. And there's a difference between someone feeling sad about their sin and someone being broken over their sin. There is a difference. When a person is broken over their sin, they want to do everything they can to make it right with God first, with others second. When someone is sad about their sin, they're just upset that they got caught and the consequences that follow and all the things that may happen to them as a result. But here's the reality. In both cases they both know that what they did was wrong. And too often for us, we keep trying to do the work in the hearts of people that only God can do in their hearts, and they have to respond to that work. And this passage really unfolded for me. Well, how do I know when someone is sincerely sorry? In other words, how do I know the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, and verse 11 just unpacked everything for me to where instead of me trying to force something, I learned to look for something. And what I've discovered over the years, we don't really study Luke chapter 8 enough in a practical setting, but if you ever look at Luke chapter 8 and you look at the, the seed and the sore, you remember the story, right? And the Bible talks about, you know, the four kinds of hearts. You've got the person who hears the word and once they've heard, they've forgotten. You've got the other person who hears the word. They're emotionally excited, but they're not willfully committed. You have the third person who knows a lot of Scripture, but they're too consumed with the cares and riches of the world, so they never come to any obedience. And then you have the person who hears and obeys. Now, what's fascinating about those four qualities of four categories of hearts you don't have any control over that at any level of time at ever, at all. So we understand what you cannot control. You don't have the power. And what's fascinating is you can give four people the same word and get four different responses. 
And if that doesn't humble you, it should. And as I work with different counselors, they believe that they have the right stuff and that if you put them in the room, they're going to make it happen because it's them. And I have had to help many counselors come to a place of humility as I'm training them because they'll be on a roll and they'll, I'll teach them a system, I'll teach them some things, and they'll be on a roll and they'll see God's people change and they get all excited. And then they'll run into one or two people where it's not working. So then they come with their heads down and they're like, oh, pastor, I, you know, I, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what's going on here. And then they try to put it on me. You showed me to do this. You told me to do this. Now, that's a backhand slap to me on the cool, right? Well, I, I just was doing what you told me to do, but now it's not working. And da, 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 da. I said, so it was working with four other people, but it's not working with these two people. Yeah, and I, I don't understand why. I said, well, this is exciting. And they go, this is exciting. I said, yeah, because you've forgotten something. I said, turn to Luke chapter 8. They go to Luke chapter 8. We walk through the, the hearts. I said, so you did this exact same thing with this person that you did with this person. You did this exact same thing with this person you did with this person. So why do you think it didn't work over here, but it worked over here? If you didn't do anything different. Well, I don't know. That's why I'm coming to you because you're the one that got me doing it. I said, here's what happened. You started trying to take credit for what was not yours to take credit for. So you thought you were doing something. You were just applying God's word to the hearts of these people, and their hearts were ready to accept it. And these people's hearts were not ready to accept it. But you thought it was you. And so because you start trying to take credit, you start taking ownership of people's choices, which meant then you had to take ownership of their failures, which put you in a place of trying to be God in the lives of people. And in your pride, God had to help you quickly so that you don't try to take or steal his glory. Because you thought it was you giving them the word. You thought it was your mechanism in your way. They were just ready to hear, and they responded to the word that you gave. Where these people over here, they didn't want the word you gave, so therefore they didn't respond. It was never about you. You were just the instrument. First Corinthians, one plants, one waters. It was God that gives the what? So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Or is that just Bible? And they had to come to a place of humility that says, oh, my goodness, prof, you're right. I said, and then on the cool, you thought you would slide in a jab at me because it must be my fault because it's not working because I taught you. I said, so you see in your manipulation and in your blame game, it had to be everybody else but you? I said, take a lesson, my friends. This is what our hearts do. When we take ownership and then it doesn't work, we don't want to take ownership anymore. When we shouldn't have had ownership in the beginning. You're not responsible for people's hearts changing. You're responsible for giving truth and loving people. It is God's job to change hearts and transform people. The moment you start to forget your place is the moment you try to be something to people that you're not God. You don't have the power to change anybody's life. You have the power to be a facilitator to everybody's life. And one of the first things I try to teach young pastors and I try to teach young counselors is this. You are not a fixer. You are a facilitator. You can't fix anybody's life, but you can facilitate in everybody's life. And watch this, only according to where their hearts are, and you don't get to control that. How's that for some humility? Let me tell you why that's so powerful. You can stop thinking that when you show up, people are going to change. 
you can start thinking that when you show up, you can have impact in lives for people to change and see where God is working in the hearts of those who are wanting it and willing and accept where it's not. Because I don't care how good your argument is. I don't care how cute you look. I don't care how well you smile. I don't care how well you present your argument. If a person's heart is not ready, they will not receive it. But on the flip side, you can fumble through it all and they grow and change. You know what I mean? You could get the words wrong, get the, the, the text, the verse the, the wrong way, the wrong, wrong way, and the person goes, but I really see what you're saying. You're like, what just happened here? I did everything wrong, and this person gets it. I don't understand. Exactly, because you thought it was about you. When there is repentance, when there is brokenness, you get to participate. You don't get to determine. You are an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. You don't determine where people go in their lives. And the beauty of this passage is that it reminds us of the work of God in the hearts of people. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 and verse 11. Let's read it together, and then let's walk through the practicalities of what this looks like. It's going to take us a little bit of time to kind of work this through. He says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God, this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church, but the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a what? Repentance without regret. Notice these words, for the sorrow that is according to the what? Will of whom? Produces what? Without regret, leading to salvation. Now, there's controversy here about the word salvation in this passage. He's talking to believers. So is he talking about a salvation as it relates to coming to Christ? Or is he talking about a salvation as in a deliverance out of the situation? Okay? I just always go the political route and say some of my friends believe that it's uh, coming out of the situation. Some of my friends believe that it's a salvation, and I support my friends. <laughs> you see how that political plays out? So what point am I making? He's talking to believers, so this could be talking about when God convicts, he can bring you unto salvation and the sorrow leads to salvation, or it could be that when he convicts, as he's talking to Christians, this sorrow that he provides brings you to a place where you're delivered out of your situation and to doing the right thing. I think both applies. So the sorrow, according to the word of God, produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but, which is a contrast, but the sorrow of the world does what? There's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. You don't produce any of these, but you see them in the hearts of people, and you can see it in your own life. I want us to make the distinction from this passage the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, because as you're learning it for yourself and as you see it in the lives of people, you'll see the difference between someone actually being broken and someone actually that got caught. And there's a difference between these sorrows. Now, what's the reality before we get into this? Both individuals are feeling guilty. Okay? And some of you get excited when someone can see what you're saying and feel guilty. They get it. They get it. No, they're guilty. Don't get excited because someone can see truth, and now you think they're ready for change. And that's when we get overzealous. A lot of people can see truth, but that doesn't mean they're ready for change. A lot of people feel guilty about their sin, but that doesn't mean they're ready to move forward and change. And feeling guilty, they're either moving to worldly sorrow or godly sorrow, and you have no control over that. But when you see where they are, then you know what you need to do, and you can see that for your own life. How many times have you felt sorry about something, and you were guilty about it, but you kept right on doing it? And you said, oh, I feel guilty about this. I feel guilty. It's like, you know, in certain churches where they still bring people down the aisle. Some churches still do that. I'm sorry. I know you guys have an issue with that. But some people still do that, right? And they come down the aisle every week. 
Every week, same person. I just feel guilty again. I feel guilty again because there's worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. And the guilt is real. But you are not ready to move forward, but that takes the power of God. And in God's sovereignty, we don't understand what's happening, but it's happening. But then in God's sovereignty, some people, that guilt leads to a truly brokenness, and they're ready to do something. So let's look at this. Number one, when sorrow over sin functions as God intends, one will move into the practice of repentance leading to salvation. The definition of godly sorrow can be defined as this, having a grief over sin in regards to who? That is the distinction right there. Some of us don't feel sorry about what we're doing to God. We feel sorry about getting caught and what's going to happen to us. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is you see the distance and the damage that's happened between you and God. You recognize that as your Savior, he should have way more from you than what he has. You recognize the imbalance of this relationship in that he loves you and has never stopped loving you but your love is always contingent upon the next thing. You see how you're like the Israelites and you want things to be different. You want a relationship. You're not trying to follow a formula anymore. You're not trying to follow a concept anymore. You're now willing to submit to a person. And because of that, you don't see God as a force or a spirit or, or something. He is a person to whom you belong and you recognize that your choices have impact in a sense of you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can quench the Holy Spirit. You recognize that this is a relationship and that your choices have an impact on this relationship versus you're trying to follow a formula to gain success follow a concept or a theory. You see the difference? A person is grieved over the reality that he has offended the Almighty God. This person has a sense of guilt with a desire and will to turn away from that which has offended God. Godly sorrow has emphasis on the relationship with the person of God instead of the consequences of the sin. In other words, the person is sorrowful because of offending God, not because of the punishment he will get. This is what we see in the Bible as contrite sorrow. Does everybody understand that? So when the Bible says in 2 Corinthians here, godly sorrow, this is what we're talking about. Now, what's the direction of godly sorrow? If it's truly godly sorrow, not that I feel bad, I feel guilty, and woe is me. If it's truly godly sorrow, look at this, godly sorrow leads us in the direction of repentance towards God. Repentance is the act of changing one's mind, resulting in a change of action towards sin. It is not merely feeling bad and seeing sin differently. It's seeing sin from God's perspective, resulting in change of purpose and life away from the sin. When you're truly broken over something towards God, you find yourself doing everything you can to no longer move in that direction. Not so much because of the consequences that it would bring to your life, but because of the relationship. Let, let me see if I can put it to you this way. It, my wife, I love my wife dearly, and she's had to put up with so much with me. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was doing a conference in Woodstock, Georgia, up near Atlanta. And every year they invite me out to that church in Woodstock. And so they put me in this hotel, and I was getting my uh, key to go to the room. And as I was getting the key, something was strange about this interaction with the manager. Normally this doesn't happen. So the woman says, and if you need anything else, you just let me know. Well, I grabbed the key, and then I got in the, the, in the elevator, and I thought, well, wait a minute. That was a little weird. And then in my flesh, it was like, I still got it. <laughs> right? <laughs> Another woman looked at me other than my wife. This is, this is cool. I mean, and I had to repent. All right? 
That was that fleshly moment. I had to repent. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it real, you know. And then I thought, oh, my goodness. And then I thought, what would have happened if I would have made a decision to act on what she said? And then I thought of the eyes of my wife. And then I thought about those pretty eyes and when she smiles and when she's in pain, what she looks like. And I said to myself, I never want to be the cause of that kind of pain to my wife. Whatever moments of pleasure it would have brought could not have compared to the pain in my wife's eyes because she trusts me enough to let me go on the road without her, knowing that I'm coming back to her to be only with her. Do you know that quick moment of I still got it turned to, oh, shame, I shouldn't have been thinking like that, and Lord, have mercy on my soul? That's how we need to be with God. The pain that he suffered for that little bitty sin, we need to recognize, oh, my goodness. He suffered way too much for me to stay in this position. That only happens when God is moving on your heart to where it's more than just about doing right. Because in that moment, it was more than just about being faithful to my wife. It was about the pain that it could have brought her. And when I see her all the time, I look at her eyes. It's like, man. I don't want to hurt her like that. I don't want to bring that kind of pain to her. That keeps me on the road. What keeps you with God? That's the kind of love. But godly sorrow means somewhere in the midst of your heart, something's changed. Does everybody see the logic? It's not merely feeling bad and seeing sin differently. It's seeing sin from God's perspective, resulting in change of purpose and life away from the sin. What's the destination of godly sorrow? Now, to be political here with the text, godly sorrow leads to uh, salvation. Salvation is deliverance from sin, resulting in a right relationship, i.e., or fellowship with God and all that comes with the right relationship, i.e., fellowship. You see how I got political there? It could be right in coming to Christ, or it could be restoring the fellowship that was broken because you're already saved. Whatever that text is saying in context, the reality is you are back in relationship or fellowship with God, and that brokenness led you into that connection. That's godly sorrow. Guys, you can't force that in yourself. You can't create that in you, and no one can put that in you. It takes the power of God to do that in your life. But notice the passage. It says this, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Let's look at point number two. When sorrow over sin functions according to the world's standard, one will not repent of his sin, resulting in death. Well, what does that mean? Worldly sorrow can be defined as grief over the consequences of sin. It is a grief and connection with the results sin brings. This person has a sense of guilt, yet he's not willing to turn away from the sin. Sorrow that functions in line with the world mourns the consequences of sin without considering God. A person functioning in worldly sorrow has a fear of what is going to happen to them as a result of getting caught. It is remorse over sin without change of mind about the sin or would change your mind about the sin, but not change your purpose of life away from sin. Guilty people know they're guilty. Guilty people know it's wrong. But the next step determines if they're motivated by God or by themselves. How many times have you sat with people and said, I know it's wrong, I know it's wrong, I shouldn't do this, and they go right back to it and do it again? I know I shouldn't do this. This is wrong. I know it's wrong. I know, I know, I know, and I know God wouldn't want me to do this but that's not enough motivation. Why? Because their hearts have not 
been broken. What's the direction of worldly sorrow? Worldly sorrow leads us away from God instead of to God. Those who walk in worldly sorrow focus on, watch this, relief of pain instead of relationship with God. Worldly sorrow leads to a preoccupation with self instead of a preoccupation with God's redemption. And you've seen that when you're talking to people. Some people enjoy being in their misery, and they enjoy talking to you about their misery. And when you try to give them solutions, they go, yeah, but I feel this way. And you try to say, yeah, but, and they just want to sit in there, and they don't want you to do, oh, you poor baby. Oh, this is just so sweet, little baby. Oh, you just, oh, come here, give me a hug. And as long as you do that, They'll keep coming to you because they're not looking for change. They're looking for someone to console them in their sin. It's not loving somebody. Before we go any further, commercial break. Look at these two distinctions, and then we're going to look at the indicators of worldly sorrow, and then we're going to break down verse 11 and look at godly sorrow. How do you know the difference? I'm going to show you some practical realities from Scripture, okay? Take a couple of minutes. Worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. Look at the distinction. Think about these things. Oh, these questions are coming in. Uh-oh. <laughs> you got to put on there, these are my wife, not me. <laughs> put your name on there as well, right? <laughs> put your name on there, Chris, so I know it's you. No. <laughs> I'm messing with you, brother. I'm messing with you. All right, gang, let's take a look at point number three. Part of the challenge of looking at worldly sorrow is that we have biblical examples, but I don't think we ever put those examples to ourselves. And I want you to think about it. And what we're going to look at in worldly sorrow here, uh, we're looking at three basic examples without putting their names there, but you can go to the passages. We're really looking at the example of Cain. We're looking at the example of the rich young ruler. We're looking at Pharaoh. 
and we're looking at Judas. If you really want the epitome of worldly sorrow, these verses, we're not going to go through them, but that's what we're talking about. So when you look at letter A, letter A gets us to Cain, sorrow over what will happen to you as a result of your sin, but no concern over how your sin has dishonored God or damaged others. When Cain slit his brother's throat, came before the Lord, lied and said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Do you hear the disrespect in the way he came to the Lord? And then when God pronounced judgment, all Cain could say is, oh, now they're going to kill me. Cain, that's the best you have? Not, I have sinned against an almighty God. I have taken the life of my dear brother. His response was, now they're going to kill me. That's an example of worldly sorrow. I, I know I'm wrong, but now look at all these bad things that are going to happen to me because I'm in trouble. Another example of worldly sorrow, let it be sorrow over sin in the situation, but I'm willing to let go of the treasures that keeps you in sin and away from genuine fellowship with God. Lord, what must I do to be right with you? Oh, I've done all of those things as far as the commandments, which is scary to say to the Lord. I've kept all the commandments is what he said, which is dangerous. But God says, okay, well, here's the one thing. Sell all of your property or your money. Sell it all. Give all your money away and come worship me. <sighs> Too bad, Jesus. I was going to serve you, but <laughs> I feel bad, but not bad enough to let this go. That's another example of worldly sorrow. I feel really bad about this, but not bad enough to stop doing what I'm doing. Here's another example of worldly sorrow. Let us see sorrow over the situation, acknowledgement of sin and acknowledgement of the character of God, but no reverence for God or fear of God's judgment in the matter. Isn't that what we saw in Exodus with Pharaoh? I know he's great. I know he's great. I know he's great, but I'm still not going to give it over. And then another example of that we saw with Pharaoh, letter D, sorrow over the situation, acknowledgement of sin and acknowledgement of the character of God, but preoccupied with relief from pain of the sin while continuing to practice the sin. So, okay, I'm going to let the people go. No, I'm not. I changed my mind. I know I should. No, I'm not. I changed my mind. Let them go. Let's go back and get them now. What is that like for you? I know I'm wrong. You decide you want to let it go, but you really won't let it go. That's worldly sorrow. I know I should. And, and this is where, when I'm dealing with my intellectual brothers and sisters, the ones who've either had a lot of training in the church with all the Bible studies or the ones who've gone to seminary, this is where they wax eloquently in trying to intelligently explain their sin to me. And then they start using all the big theological words as if I don't know what they're talking about. You know, and then they start trying to go, well, technically, uh, you know, this is an issue of the heart. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I understand. And, and, you know, I have the right anthropology. And so, you know, and I, I know that, you know, the harmatology issue here, and blah, 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 blah. I said, bro, you just told me that you understand the nature of man and that you're dealing with sin. But what you haven't said is why you're unwilling to repent of all these things you can intellectually explain to me. If you want to play theology, we can do that. If you want to deal with your heart, let's go there. And I've had guys that I've had to work with who they like to play the logic game too. You know, it's one of the things as you disciple men and women, the difference between men and women a lot of times is uh, for many cases with the men, it's always a contest. You always have to take them to the end of themselves because they know more than they think they know all the time. And you have to take them to the end of themselves to show them they don't know what they think they know, but you love them enough to let them get there. And then when they are exposed, you don't bring them down, you help them up. Kind of like what Jesus did with Peter. Peter, cast your net. Lord, we've been fishing all night. Isn't that what he said? What was that code for? We know fishing. You stick to preaching. But nevertheless, your will be done. And then when he caught all the fish, oh, I'm a sinful person. That's right, Peter, because you thought you knew something because that was in your field. And no one could take you beyond your own knowledge to show you don't know all of what you think you know. You have to do that with men. Sometimes as I'm working with women, I have to work through the 
challenge of the feelings of the moment that has become reality versus what reality is in the moment. And to say, I'm not trying to challenge your experience. I am not in any way saying that what happened to you did not happen to you. This is real. Please hear me as your pastor say this is real. I'm trying to help you understand your interpretation of this experience is not God's interpretation. See, you're not listening to me. You don't care about me, pastor. I do care about you, sweetie. I really do. And I'm giving you the tissue, and I'm going to sit here with you. And I'm going to say it another way because I am no way trying to dishonor, disrespect that this happened. But you're saying this, and the Bible says this. See, you don't, you know, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. Am I lying? (laughs) And both sides of the coin, it's the idea of how do I help this person see reality and embrace reality so there can be real change without trying to hurt or demean them in their experience and their knowledge. What's the best course of action? People who have worldly sorrow, they're stuck where they are. Letter E, here's the big one, sorrow over sin, yet seeking to handle the consequences of sin according to your will instead of God's way. Is that not what Judas did? People who commit suicide, there are two sides of the coin with suicide when you study it biblically. When someone is pondering suicide, it's either overwhelming guilt in the soul that they're trying to release themselves from, that's what we saw with Judas, or overwhelming external pressure that they're trying to escape from, that's what we saw with Saul. But either way, the pressure from inside or outside is so great that instead of embracing God's will, they're trying to take care of it their way. And when you're working with someone who wants to commit suicide, one of the realities is this. They have come to the right understanding of life, just the wrong solution. Let me explain what I mean. People who want to commit suicide have come to understand that life is worthless. And it's not worth living when you're trying to live for yourself. But the solution is not to take your life. The solution is to give your life to the one who will make it worth something. But someone has to help them see that reality. But first you have to help them through the pressures that are happening on the inside or the pressures that are happening on the outside to sit and hear. Let me me take that. Let me talk to him. (laughs) The pressures on the inside or the outside. They have to help them see that and sit and listen and say, I hear you, and I'm not trying to demean this experience. Let's see if we can help you interpret it through God's perspective. Because your solution has eternal consequences. Would you consider another solution for this reality that I can agree with you in? Life is worthless and meaningless without God. There is a book of the Bible after Proverbs. Anybody know what that book is? Tells us all about that. Vanity of vanities. So the problem with people who want to commit suicide is not that they don't have reality. They just have the wrong solution. That's worldly sorrow at its finest. Does that make sense? These are examples of worldly sorrow. Let's look at verse 11. Verse 11 gives us when a person is truly broken, these are the things that we see. It says, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent and 
the matter. You can't force that. That is a reality of a heart that's broken by God that wants to make things right. Let's look at each one of those characteristics. Earnestness is a sense of urgency or a diligence to turn away from that which is sinful and walk in that which is right in the sight of God. Vindication of yourselves is making sure that the record has been set straight in the matter, the clearing of oneself as a result of being forgiven. Indignation is a hatred or disgust with sin that has been committed. In other words, the person has a hatred for the sin committed. It gives the indication that a person hates the sin as God hates it or is bothered by the sin. Let me give an example of how that looks. Um, let's say I have a little bit of vomit on my lips, just right here on the side. Just a little bit, not a lot, just a little bit. And I'm talking to you, and the vomit is right there. Could, could you could you listen to me? Oh, okay, okay. What if the vomit was not on my lips, but it was just right here on this altar, or not this altar, this pulpit? Would you, could you be okay with that? I mean, you know what's there, but it's just a little bit of vomit. That's a problem for you? When you start to hate sin the way you hate vomit, then you'll understand the nature of God. Even a little bit of vomit was disgusting to you. Even a little bit of sin is disgusting to God. See, the moment you hate sin the way you hate vomit, there won't be any more issues. Am I making sense to you? Fear. One is afraid of the wrath of God. It suggests that there's a fear of the discipline of the Lord. It suggests that one has a healthy awareness that God deals with man in his sin. Longing, a desire for reconciliation and connection with God, a desire for a right relationship with God. Zeal, a passion for seeing things done right and according to God's will, a passion for God's will to be done in a specific matter. Avenging of wrong. Making sure justice is done in the context of the passage, avenging wrong has to do with seeing justice done for the sin that was done. A person who's truly repentant will seek to avenge the wrong. Innocent in the matter. What does that mean? Seeking to be clean of the sin for which one has committed. One is pursuing holiness in the matter. Therefore, to seek to be innocent in the matter is to seek to be pure or clean. These are the indications, my brothers and sisters, of someone who's broken over their sin. If we don't see these things, then what are we looking at? Worldly sorrow. That's not complicated, is it? Our problem is we keep trying to produce these things. You're not the Holy Spirit. You can't make people be broken over their sin. You can only give them truth and watch God work. And the more you do that, when there's true brokenness, we see God is at work and we can become the facilitators of more of the process of change, where people are still making excuses versus making confessions. We pray for, and we make sure we're available, but we can't force it because it's not our job. The more you can accept this, the more you will love people instead of trying to fix, control, manipulate, and push them into the way that you want them to be because it pleases and satisfies you. You can say it's about the Lord, but it's not. Because if it was about the Lord, you would be doing what the Lord is doing, and you would understand your role in the situation. Sometimes we try to get ahead of God, or we try to take over for God. This is produced by God and God alone. So how do we do this? The reality is, if someone is broken, what we're about to talk about next can happen. If someone is not broken... This won't happen. First parts of it they can do, but the next part of it they can't. They can see the sin and understand it, but if they're not broken over it, nothing happens. So let me give you some steps, some practical things that a person can do when they are truly broken and ready for change. Letter A, identify where you may have been thinking, speaking, or acting in sin towards God in particular situations. Identify where you may have been thinking, speaking, and acting in sin towards others in particular situations. Identify where you may have been thinking, speaking, or acting in sin in response to unfavorable or difficult circumstances. When there is sin in your life, it's going to be in one of those three places, towards God, towards people, or towards circumstances. 
And you need to think, where am I sending now? Is it towards God? Is it towards people? Is it towards circumstances? By the way, if it's towards people or circumstances, it's already towards whom? God. Letter D, identify what you want or desire that you cannot control getting from God, others, or circumstances. At the core of your sin, there's always a desire that you've turned into a demand. The moment we understand that, we can begin to do business with our hearts. Remember that at the core of every sin, there's a desire for something. You don't sin because you're just trying to sin. You're always after something. There's always a desire. Letter, letter E, confess and repent of lusting after those wants or desires you cannot control getting from God, others, or circumstances. Confess and repent of the ungodly thoughts, words, or actions towards God, others, and circumstances. Identify the thoughts, words, actions, or desires God is seeking to develop through your circumstances. Discipline yourself to think, behave, and relate in ways that are pleasing to God. Identify the various ways you can show thanks to God for what he's allowing in your life. Lay out a daily schedule of tasks that you're responsible for doing and work on accomplishing them apart from your feelings. One of the hardest things to do in the Christian life is to do what needs to be done whether you feel like it or not. Now, you'll go to work whether you feel like it or not, but that's because you're motivated by the security of the money. But it's interesting how you won't obey God whether you feel like it or not. I always laugh at folk at my church. I, I, I try not to make them mad, but I make them mad anyway. I say, a drop of rain, and I won't see y'all on Sunday. But a drop of rain going to work, you will pull out your umbrella to get to your car because you got to get to make that coin. You are exposing the motivation of your heart. See, one of the things that I do that I can't let Christians off the hook with is don't tell me you can't do it. Tell me either you don't know how or you haven't learned what or you just don't want to. But don't tell me you can't because everything God has commanded of you, you can do because he didn't tell you go do it. He left God, the Holy Spirit, in you who gives you the power to put the depth, the deeds of the body and to walk in a manner worthy, producing the fruit of the Spirit. So don't tell me you can't. That's why I don't play games with people who are Christians. I love you too much to play games with you. It's not that you can't. Let's find out why you're not. And by the way, you really don't have an option. You've just given yourself an option, which is why you're miserable. A double-minded person is what? Unstable in all their ways. I love it when people say, I'm struggling with this. It's not that you're struggling. You don't want to let go of this. But you know you should be doing this. A struggle is, I'm doing this, but as I'm doing this, I find myself wanting to go back to this, and I'm having a hard time dealing with my desires. That's struggling. That's falling forward, if you will. I'm obeying, but my heart is still struggling with wanting this thing, and I'm trying to let go as I'm obeying. You see the difference? Here's the next thing. Identify some key ways you can serve others and do it apart from your feelings. Have you ever just not liked somebody? Has that ever happened? You just don't like them. I mean, it's, it's not that they didn't do something. You just don't like them. Has that ever happened? Am I the only one? Don't look at me like that. I'm the only one. <laughs> Those are the ones you should love the most. Do you know that we're not called to like everybody? We're called to love everybody. I don't like my enemies. God didn't call me to like them. He told me to love my enemies, not like them. If I liked them, they'd be my friends. They wouldn't be my enemies. Sometimes we confuse liking people with loving people because there's some people we like that we're not loving because if we truly love them, we would tell them the truth. But because we like them and like the experience of being around them, we won't be open and loving. We're actually lying to them because we like them so much and enjoy the benefit of their company. We don't want to mess that up. So we like them so much we don't love them enough. 
And then there are people we can't stand. We don't mind telling them what we think. Isn't there something wrong with that, you think? Oh, wait, I digress. Letter F, focusing on speaking words that are edifying. And then finally, learn to receive and cultivate hope that comes from trusting God. If I could spend a whole hour, one of these days I want to do that, I want to spend a whole hour on hope and disappointment. You can learn so much about yourself by the things that disappoint you. Let me see if I can explain to you this way. I was reading a book by Paul Tripp, and I almost threw the book against the wall. And I was like, I don't want to talk to Paul Tripp. I don't want to read nothing else, Paul Tripp. I'm mad at Paul Tripp. But he said this one statement. I'm paraphrasing because I can't say it exactly the way he said it. But he said, disappointments in life expose where you are trusting in things more than what God has promised. And it's an evaluation of what you are trusting in that was not promised by God. Because the Bible says the hope of the Lord does not disappoint. I took the book, I said, no, don't talk about that. But I want you to think about that. You can learn a lot about yourself where you're constantly disappointed. Because that means you are expecting things that were not promised by God. And instead of adjusting your expectations, you keep holding on to them and keep being mad at God and everybody else. Whereas if you lowered your expectations and raised your love in those areas, things will be different. And I always get those people, men and women, to go to the extreme. So are you telling me I should just not expect anything at all? I should just never think and and expect anything from anybody. And I go, now you're going and being dramatic, and you've been extreme. I'm telling you to not live for your expectations because they're not promised, but to live out of your love for God and people. See, if you don't live for your expectations and you love according to God's will, when things don't come through the way you want, you learn how to handle it well because you recognize this was not promised. While you love the people and love through the circumstances because you're not driven by what you're expected, you're driven by your responsibility to love. That's how you learn to enjoy the good and endure the bad while living for Jesus Christ. That is the secret of contentment, by the way. When things are good, enjoy it. When things are bad, endure it. But live for Christ through all of it because you will not always have everything you want the way you want it, when you want it, how you want it. But when you get it, thank you, Lord, this is great. I tell my wife, you know, we need to enjoy when God gives us more than what we need and also share. That's First Timothy 6, 17. God gives us uh, rich things to enjoy, but it also says for those who are rich, be generous. So I tell my congregation all the time, when God gives you more than what you need, enjoy and share. When you get a raise, the church should get a raise. Y'all didn't hear that, did you? (laughs) What point am I making? God never gives you more than what you need just for yourself. But when you have, enjoy. But when you don't, it's the same God that blessed you. It's the same God that's allowing a drought. And it's the same God you're serving in both situations. And it's the same God that deserves to be praised in all of it because He is about your sanctification to reflect him. You are about your comfort. And do you know God will hurt your feelings if it will build your character? See, the moment we start to think like this, this is wisdom thinking. This is seeing life the way God has set it up. This is seeing life the way God and his providence has allowed it to operate and showing us Here's how I want you to work in this world that has happened as you rejected me and now sin has been introduced into the world. Let me show you how things work, good, bad, and evil. And let me show you how I expect you to operate, not on your own because I've given you the power. And let me help you see what's going on in your own heart in the midst of this and what I've given you as the resources to handle all of these things. 
So the more you understand it and you surrender to it, you have the wisdom, the skill to live out this life the way God called and to come alongside other brothers and sisters and say, let me share with you these realities. And if you're willing to accept them, let's move forward in the process of change together. But that only happens as there's godly sorrow. Now, I'm going to close here with that and ask you to consider this. Where is God speaking to you through his word? Who are the people? What are the circumstances? What are the situations where God is calling you to do something different and to be something different? What excuses have you been making up to this point? And what confessions should you be having at this point? Where were you learning that you need to confess, where you need to repent, and where you need to replace? Where you are sinning specifically is where you need to obey specifically. Does that make sense? A grumbler doesn't stop grumbling by saying, today, I'm going to spend a whole day not grumbling. A grumbler stops grumbling when he says, today, I'm going to think of 10 things I can thank God for. Today, for every negative thought I have, I'm going to think of three things that I can praise God for. What happens to the grumbling as that happens? It gets less and less and less. An angry person doesn't stop being angry because he focuses on not being angry. An angry person stops being angry when he recognizes that the world doesn't revolve around him anymore and that he can't always have what he wants when he wants and he learns to appreciate what God gives when he learns to adjust his desires to fit the situation. Oh, I wanted this, but God has only let me have this. Let me adjust to what I can have. Let me be doing or walk in what God has given me the responsibility to do and he becomes angry less because he accepts God's will more Angry people don't accept what God allows or submit to what he says. You don't just stop being angry. You start accepting what God allows and submits to what he says. And guess what happens? You get angry less and less and less. A person who's worried won't stop being worried because they're just going to focus on not being worried. This person recognizes that whatever you think you're going to lose cannot compare to what you already have in Jesus Christ. And so they accept the reality that nothing that they hold on to they can keep and nothing that they think they can control that may happen, whatever worse it will be, they have and serve a great God who will never leave them nor forsake them. And whatever the worst is, they have a God who will take them through it. And if he allows it, he has their greatest interest at heart. You just don't stop worrying. You have to work on the worship of God who controls all things. That's discipline. That takes process. That's what discipleship is about, is teaching people how to live out the Christian life in lieu of what they've been living. The moment we start doing that in disciplined ways, we start to experience the power of God in ways in our lives we didn't think possible. Please hear me well. Let me, I, I want to state this because I think this is important. Sometimes we think reading our Bibles and meditating on Scripture is what makes us spiritual and that that's what God has for us. There are many unbelievers who are reading the Bible instead of Scripture and meditating on it. The goal, and never confuse the disciplines of the Christian life with the Christian life. Let me put it to you this way. Obedience is not the end. Obedience is the avenue. Let me explain what I mean by that. God saved you to know him. Is that right? God saved you to become like him. Is that right? God saved you to be what? What is the avenue to knowing him, becoming like him, being useful to him? Obedience. What is the avenue to learning obedience? The study of Scripture. See, somehow we thought the discipline of studying Scripture 
was what makes us spiritual. No, you study scripture so you can learn truth. You learn truth so you can put it to practice. You put it to practice so that you may know him, become like him, be useful to him. That's the ultimate goal. That is our Christianity. But the moment you reduce it to a Bible study and studying the scriptures and memorizing scripture, not understanding that that means nothing if you don't take the truth and obey it so that you may know him, become like him, be useful to him, you get a shallow form of Christianity. And that's where a lot of people are missing. Let me, let me see if I can put it this way. Let's say if my brother Carl said, hey, man, if you want to get to know me, bro, you call me on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 7 p.m. Now, what Carl has just said is, if I want to get to know him, he set a standard. And the standard was call him on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 7 p.m. So let's say I call my brother on those days, and as soon as he picks up the phone, I hang up. And then I tell everybody, well, I'm getting to know Carl. <laughs> well, how are you getting to know Carl? Well, I call him every Monday, every Wednesday and Friday. I followed the law that was set. Well, what happens? Well, I just followed the law. I don't talk to him. I just followed the law. I just called him on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. What was the goal of that standard? Was it to call him or was that the avenue to know him? Self-righteous people think that by following the law, that makes them right with God. People who walk by faith understand that the righteousness is an avenue to connecting. You see the difference? And I can always tell when I'm in the self-righteous land in certain churches I go to. I remember this one guy says, you know, Nicholas, um, the reason why this brother is sinning is because they're not studying their Bibles. I said, no, they're studying their Bible. They're not allowing the Bible to study them. Oh, I love those people who come to me and say, Nicholas, this is my 30th time going through the Bible this year. <laughs> and I'm going on 31. I say, it's great you've gone through the Bible, but how many times has the Bible gone through you? See, since you've gone through the Bible, tell me how you've come to know him. Since you've gone through the Bible, tell me how you've become like him in your character, conduct, conversations, commitments, and commodities and communions. Since you've gone through the Bible, tell me how you've been useful to him in personal relationships. Who is experiencing your evangelism? Who is experiencing your discipleship since you've gone through the Bible the 31st time? If it's not leading you to know him, tell me what you've come to experience in reality about the character of God since you've been reading about his sovereignty. How has that impacted your life in that situation where you chose to get angry, but then you recognize if God is in control, what am I angry about? Until you can start to make the sovereignty a reality for your decisions, I don't want to hear about how much you've studied about the attributes of God. It's just a study. But the moment you embrace, according to Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to him must believe that he is, that he is what? Sovereign, that he is holy, that he is gracious, and that he's a reward of those that seek him. Until you transition that to how that impacted your decision on that day is just information. See, the moment you tell me, because I've embraced the sovereignty of God, I've let go of trying to control my children whom I cannot control and recognizing that I can facilitate change in their life because control is in the hands of God. Now we're talking. Because I know that God is a God of sufficiency, I have accepted that I can't have my way in certain things and I've embraced God's way in a lot of things because he's enough for me in that moment. Now we're talking. Now your Bible study has transitioned to what it was meant to be, knowing him, becoming like him, and being useful to him. Because of what I've learned, I have embraced this relationship with this brother or sister over here at the job, and I've been spending time investing in them in hopes that an opportunity will come for me to give them the gospel. Because of understanding this holiness of God and the fact that I'm in the kingdom and I'm part of his priesthood, I've spent more time with my brothers and sisters who know the Lord, and there are some areas of weakness that they wanted me to be investing in, and I've been investing to help them grow in knowing him and becoming like him. Now we're talking. Don't tell me about your Bible study if it hasn't been deduced to knowing him, becoming like him, being useful to him. It's just another Bible study. 
It's just another scripture you've memorized to try to impress me with. It's just another book you've read. Don't be deceived by cultural Christianity. Anybody can quote a verse and read the Bible, but only those who belong to him can know him, become like him, be useful to him. That's you. So as we close, I want to encourage you, and I want you to fill in the blanks. You are here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We're seeing reality. We're seeing where you are. We're seeing where we are. We want you. We can't fix ourselves. We can't change things. We want you. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide us. Help us to confess. Help us to repent. Help us to replace. Help us to really come to know you, to understand the nature of who you are. And help us to understand that in the areas where we're sinning the most, because the areas we're sinning the most, Lord, is the areas where we trust you the least, and we need to embrace your character in those areas. Speak to our hearts. Help us to understand what is it about you we need to be trusting right now so we wouldn't sin the way we're sinning. Lord, there's some character deficiencies in our thoughts and in our words and in our behaviors and our lifestyle and in our relational patterns. Expose us, Lord. Help us to see where those things are, and by your power, guide us into changing them to reflect you more. And Lord, forgive us for how selfish we are. Help us to stop using other people and start giving ourselves to them in such a way that guides them to either know you or guides them to becoming like you or guides them into being useful to you. Lord, we are tired of this shallow Christianity. We're tired of a cultural Christianity. We want to experience you in the way you've called us to that's limited by faith because we know that we can't have all the things we want. Right now, it's by faith. But Lord, one day our faith will become reality. Teach us how to maximize a life of faith in your presence. And we'll be careful to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.